0: Hello and welcome to SITREP, your weekly update on defence and foreign affairs. Chaotic scenes in Washington D.C. What does the riot by Donald Trump's supporters do to America's reputation around the world?
1: This is not dissent, it's disorder, it's chaos, borders on sedition and it must end now.
0: With the whole of the UK now in lockdown, thousands of military personnel join the biggest ever at-home operation in peacetime. What our
2: soldiers are doing down here for for our nation is, is hugely important. And the sacrifices that they are making and their families are making are so, so appreciated by me, by the army and by our nation.
0: We look ahead to the challenges facing the forces in 2021 at home and overseas not just coronavirus, but financial worries and a host of other issues. Plus, 20 years after international forces went in, is this finally the year of a peace deal in Afghanistan.
3: Some kinds of violence have tapered off, but other kinds have surged. And so the the reality for the average Afghan, or for virtually any Afghan, is really, really bloody and hard.
0: Now, you may have hoped that 2021 would be calmer than last year, or at least more hopeful. So far, that's not happening. As the UK was plunged into another lockdown, the political chaos that's engulfed the United States over the past year exploded onto the streets of Washington, D.C. On the day Congress was due to certify Joe Biden's victory in the presidential election, Donald Trump told his supporters to march on the building and demand they overturn that result. A mob stormed the Capitol, entering the chamber of the Senate. They fought with police. Four people died. And for more than two hours, the President of the United States said nothing. It fell to the President-elect to demand an end to the disorder. What
1: we're seeing are a small number of extremists dedicated to lawlessness. This is not dissent. It's disorder. It's chaos. It borders on sedition. And it must end
0: now. Donald Trump did eventually tell his supporters to go home, but he also repeated his allegation that this election was rigged, a claim he has repeatedly made without providing any evidence to support it. Well, on this week's SITREP, we're going to take a look at some of the big issues likely to dominate the coming year, and we'll start with what happens Next. In America, well, joining me today are Lucy Fisher, the deputy political editor at the Telegraph; Shashank Joshi, defence editor at the Economist, and Professor Michael Clark, former director of the Defence Think Tank. Lucy, hello to you all. Um, Lucy, while Congress later did confirm Biden's win, these are not the scenes you associate with a country that calls itself the world's greatest democracy.
4: Absolutely not.
0: Um, extraordinary,
4: appalling uh, scenes uh, in Washington yesterday, uh, but but in a sense, um, I and, and many others am um, shocked but not surprised. There is a sense in which this is the logical conclusion of the kind of rhetoric um, we have heard from Donald Trump uh, in the past four years uh, and his bid to fan the flames of hatred. Um, I'm glad that, uh, you know, we saw 10 former Pentagon chiefs, um, including Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, sort of step in um, earlier this week with an article to the Washington Post, warning the military not to get involved in blocking the peaceful handover of power. But I think we are going to see um, a very fraught, tense uh, days ahead um, as Washington remains in a state of um, emergency before the uh, presidential inauguration of Joe Biden.
0: Michael Clark, the the Prime Minister and NATO Secretary General, both put out statements deploring the violence in Washington, and many around the world explicitly link that violence to Donald Trump's words. How will this be viewed, do you think, in Moscow and Beijing? Uh,
1: They'll be delighted to see it, uh, because this is exactly their narrative, that there is something fundamentally corrupt about American democracy, and why would you uh, ever want that if you're a Russian citizen or a Chinese citizen? They will... um, They'll make very considered statements, I think they'll they'll make statements that, sh- that talk about due process and observation of the law and so on. But believe me, this is a, a massive own goal for the United States. And it makes it even more difficult for the things that Joe Biden is going to have to do in trying to as unpick some of the, the, the legacy that uh, Trump policies have left behind, particularly in relation to Russia and China. Not a good day for America at all.
0: Yes, and Shashank Joshi is a sign of just how divided the country Joe Biden inherits. And while he's won narrow control of the Senate, will that division hamper his ability to change things, do you think?
5: Well, I think the thing we can forget is, of course, yesterday was a scene of extraordinary violence, but it was also a day in which uh, 2 runoff races in the state of Georgia were won by Democrats, meaning that uh, for the first time in many, many years, uh, you have a situation of a uh, a White House Congress, uh, controlled by one president, flipping to another one. The Democrats now have control, uh, essentially, with the vice president's casting vote. So, although, yes, he will face long-term resistance. Um, let's not forget that six senators and a majority of House Republicans voted effectively to overthrow the election result, which is incredible. Um, the fact that you now have democratic control of the Senate, um, it, it makes life a little bit easier for the president elect, despite all of the uh, division and rancour that will be left from yesterday's scenes.
0: Uh, Lucy Fisher, how do you think this will affect the US's reputation globally?
4: Well, um, I think it's a very much a, a damning indictment uh, uh, of uh, the US's reputation, and um, I think it will take time um, for Joe Biden to sort of rebuild that reputation. Um, I, I, I think, as um, as Michael said, it will be um, leapt upon with glee by um, authoritarian societies uh, across the world uh, as sort of proof somehow that you know d- democracies can break down, um, justifying perhaps um, more. Um, heavy handed uh, approaches to security uh, and surveillance of um, civilian populations. But um, I, th- I think the key thing we're going to to see um, going forward is Joe Biden looking to um, rebuild U- the US's uh, reputation, primarily by returning to the, the sort of multilateralism that we've seen um, Donald uh, Trump eschew in, 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 during his presidency.
0: Well, we'll talk more a little later about some of the international challenges facing the new administration in Washington. But first, it's been a dramatic week at home as well.
6: I'm afraid you must once again stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives.
0: On Monday night, the Prime Minister announced a third lockdown, one that could last as long as three months. The weeks ahead will be the hardest yet, but
6: I really do believe that we're entering the last phase of the struggle because with every jab that goes into our arms, we are tilting the odds against Covid and in favour of the British people.
0: It's 10 months since the military was brought in to help in the early stages of the coronavirus pandemic. Now it's grown into the biggest ever peacetime domestic operation for the armed forces. 5,000 troops performing dozens of different tasks. On New Year's Day, Army Sergeant Major W01 Gavin Payton visited military personnel in Kent helping with coronavirus testing.
2: I'm the, the senior soldier of the army and I support CGS and all of our senior generals. And I bring the voice of our soldiers into the four star space and I I suppose in big handfuls I'm a translator a courier and a thermometer so I translate strategic narrative up and down the chain I'm a courier because I carry the message and I'm a thermometer because I measure the temperature I think what our soldiers are doing down here for for our nation is is hugely important and the sacrifices that they are making and their families are making are so so appreciated by me by the army and by our nation that if it's important enough for them to be away from their families on new year's day it's important enough for me to be here to say thank you to them everybody appreciates what they're doing the sacrifices that they make and that their families are making for the fight against covid cannot be underestimated and i just want them to know that as a senior soldier in the army i can't be everywhere but i I try my best and i've come here today just to let them know that what they're doing is really appreciated by everybody
0: well, let's return to our panel now. Shashank Joshi, we've seen the military brought in to help with past domestic crises, but outside of wartime, never for this long or on this scale.
5: No, um, it's it's a real test of their capabilities, but also um, something we've seen across the world, in many parts of Europe, um, in many parts of Asia. It's partly the logistical challenge. No other government institution is accustomed to moving so much stuff in such a space of time so efficiently. Um, there's the question of Flexible manpower, no other government agency has the sheer number of boots and, and, and hands able to be mobilised at short notice. But I think I've also seen some very impressive use of more niche capabilities, things like the Defence Medical Service, um, with you know incredible scientific talent at places like DSTL. So it isn't just. Um, a question of you know warm bodies being moving, you know moving trucks from A to B. I think we're also seeing a really interesting and significant use of bits of the armed forces that I think most people don't know exist.
0: And Michael Clark, if we can imagine a time after this pandemic, are there lessons from the involvement of the military that officials might want to learn from to boost resilience in future?
1: Yes, I think there are and I think they, they'll be on both sides as well I mean, traditionally, the military are only brought in as a last resort to civil administrative tasks or when there's lots of sandbags to be filled over flooding or something like that and when the military, as we've said before on this programme, when the military comes in it tends to come in in quite a big way, quite an expensive way, and it sort of pushes the civilian organization aside and does it itself, and it's very good at doing that. Um, In in a way, we've got to think about ways in which the military can be integrated more normally in some of the things that civilian authorities might need to do, and the military needs to think more about how to modularize a bit more what it can offer. It does quite a lot of that, but there's still a bit of a mismatch between, if you like, the Ministry of Defence and the rest of Whitehall when there is a problem. Um, and there's often a lot of, of tension in those early stages. You know, we, the Home Office didn't want the military coming in on the on the Olympics uh, until it was almost too late and then when the military came in, they had to sort of push aside everything that was there. So there's, there's a, a fair few lessons to learn from this, but the view is, when we think about biosecurity and natural hazard issues that are are arising in our country now, then the, the military is likely to be called upon in the home environment rather more than we used to think.
0: News, discussions and analysis. This is ZITREC. Well, the pandemic forced a long delay in the major review of defence, but last year ended with an unexpected funding boost for the MOD. But with that integrated review still to be revealed, are there more surprises ahead? Here's Laura Macon-Isherwood.
6: The doubters, the doomsters, the gloomsters, they are going to get it wrong
7: again. Boris Johnson's vision of 2020 was one of prosperity and change not just in terms of EU membership, but global position too.
5: From the day I arrived at the MOD, I recognised the need for change and investment.
7: Defence Secretary Ben Wallace was continuing the task of tackling his department's budget problems and modernising the armed forces, one element of the government-wide integrated review.
5: When last month the Prime Minister called me to confirm his determination to deliver a vision for global Britain and defence's role in it, I knew he had created a real opportunity for us to not only deal with the legacy of previous flawed reviews, but to embark on a deep and far-ranging programme of reform.
7: With seemingly no more money expected from the Treasury, rumours of cuts began. Service chiefs set about presenting the vision for their respective services, while Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, said integration would be key. It will be enabled at every level by a digital backbone into which all sensors, effectors and
6: deciders will be plugged. This means that some industrial age capabilities will increasingly have to meet their sunset to create the space for capabilities needed for sunrise.
7: The department sounded as though it was gearing up for big shifts, but as the COVID crisis continued, in April, the government placed the integrated review on pause. An uncertain economy was making decision-making too difficult and the months ticked by. There were promises of results with a multi-year spending plan in autumn, only for that to be pulled at the last minute by the Treasury. Four weeks later, the Prime Minister announced a change in defence's fortunes.
6: An increasing defence spending by £24.1 billion pounds over the next four years. That's £16.5 billion more than our manifesto commitment
7: It's cash that the PM says will help fund future technologies, support a new centre dedicated to artificial intelligence, create a national cyber force and a new RAF space command that will launch British satellites and a rocket by 2022. But while the move has been praised, many raised concerns that difficult decisions will still need to be made, including former Chief of the General Staff Lord Dannett.
1: I think one has to realise that we're starting from a base of underfunding and that there are many... Uh, gaps in the defence budget at the present moment.
7: And Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer. Defence spending has fallen
6: by over £8 billion in real terms over the last 10 years.
7: More than a year after it was first launched, 2021 could finally deliver the Integrated Review's conclusions, whatever they may be.
0: Laura make an issue with reporting. Well, let's pick up with our panel: Lucy Fisher from the Telegraph, Shashank Joshi from the Economist, and Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Lucy Fisher, that extra money announced late last year is to fund a very ambitious programme, but there's still a big financial hole at the MOD.
4: That's absolutely right. Um, I mean, it's a, it's an eye-catching amount sixteen point five billion extra over four years for the for the Ministry of Defence, and lots of pretty exciting um, plans unveiled by the Prime Minister, including um, the long national cyber force, uh, a new space command, an artificial intelligence agency, uh, an investment in combat drones. Um, that said, as you as you mentioned, the uh, the ministry's finances are already in a pretty parlous state. Um, there's a funding black hole of up to 13 billion in its current 10-year kit plan. Before you get to those exciting um, new ventures uh, that Boris Johnson wants to pursue. So, while it is um, it, it Bigger investment of cash, indeed, the the biggest since the end of the Cold War, um, and and more than than many uh, defence insiders and commentators were expecting, um, we will still yet have to see um, you know, significant cuts in order to balance the books and allow um, the government to forge ahead with some of the new technology they want to invest in.
0: And Shashank Joshi, more cuts were also announced towards the end of 2020, including putting the Royal Navy Reserves on hold and limiting at-sea exercises. Presumably, when the Integrated Review emerges, there'll be some other difficult decisions in there.
5: Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you mention those, because, of course, That the line that the government's taken or hinted at is that this is going to be a maritime tilt. It's going to have a naval, a pronounced naval flavour to it. And of course, before the review was, uh, the funding decisions were announced, we had the Defence Secretary writing. Um, in the Sunday Times, I think, of of the sentimental attachment to static armor-centric warfare, words that sounded uh, very ominous if you are in the the armored forces. Uh, So I I think there's a strong sense that armored forces uh, will certainly take a little bit of a hit. And I think it's just worth emphasizing, although the line, as Lucy pointed out, has been very tech-heavy, drones, AI, cyber forces, um, it it is true that um, lots of this cash will be absorbed by legacy commitments that are not very sexy. Uh, Things like the nuclear deterrent uh, and other big fixed projects, and things like the future combat aircraft, the Tempest program. Huge amounts of this cash infusion will be really focused on this. The amounts left over for things like cutting-edge AI and drones will probably look relatively modest when that dust has settled and we see the final numbers.
0: Mm, and Michael Clark, the COVID response has indicated again how vital the military can be at home. But what if we'd been engaged in a major operation overseas at the same time? Is there a concern about whether we'll have the kind of numbers necessary for? Two two big events at once.
1: Yes, uh, we've always had a problem of concurrency, of uh, you know, doing two things at once, and we found that when uh, British forces were involved, still involved in Iraq, when they were trying to rework their, their uh, operations in Afghanistan. It was just too difficult to keep two, even moderate size operations going uh, simultaneously. And it's not because the, the, there is a lack of, of personnel, but it's the enablers, it's all of the things, the support and the logistics that go into it. And remember that at the moment, the Navy are very happy with the sort of developments that they're getting because they're getting for certain the programme that they wanted in 2010 they'll get it by 2024-25 but the army is in a state of some flux the The purposes of the army and the sort of equipment that the army is, is going to use and the balance of equipment is still under discussion, it's still all there in the mix and so if there were a couple of uh, bigger operations to look to in the next three or four years we might be scratching around um, trying to adapt old legacy systems to new purposes. So it may be a, a rather dangerous period that we're about to uh, embark upon.
0: This is trap. Now, we've already talked about the extraordinary scenes in Washington, D.C. this week, but that's far from the only big issue waiting for America's new president, as James Hurst explains. Oui!
6: The world ushered in 2021 with high hopes but muted celebrations, because like the pandemic, the global challenges don't change overnight. The US and China remain locked in a war of words, Iran and North Korea still developing missile and nuclear technologies, international troops in their 20th year in Afghanistan. But in a matter of days, one man might substantially shift the centre of gravity in international tensions.
0: The United States of America, Joe Biden.
6: A new commander-in-chief for the world's most powerful armed forces, who promises a more conventional kind of leadership.
1: We will lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example.
6: NATO allies will likely welcome a more predictable relationship with the U.S. under Joe Biden, making it easier for them to project unity to the world. But they have a very difficult choice to make almost immediately. Should NATO troops leave Afghanistan, as set out in the faltering peace deal between the US and Taliban, or is the time still not right? The NATO secretary-general wants this tough decision taken next month.
3: What we need to see is a
5: lasting uh, peace agreement, and part of that has to be a ceasefire. Uh, so the reduction of violence should only be the first step.
6: But the real challenges lie in preventing military conflict. This year, Iran says it plans to enrich uranium to just a step away from weapons grade. It's abandoned the limits of the nuclear deal which Donald Trump withdrew from, and Joe Biden says he's willing to re-enter. But the head of the UN's nuclear inspectors, Rafael Grossi, warns it's not as simple as just going back to
1: square one. Because square one is no longer there. There is more material, there is more um, activity, there are more centrifuges and more are being announced. So what happens with all this?
6: In dealing with Iran's nuclear ambitions, the new US president will have to balance his preference for agreements with his pledge to fight rising authoritarianism. The same balance is going to be needed in approaching Russia, with old nuclear weapons treaties either expiring or already abandoned, and replacements urgently needed. And then there is China, building up its military while leveraging its growing economic power. Joe Biden wants to put up a united front to China with allies. And that is why the world will be watching to see if the UK's first aircraft carrier deployment in more than a decade goes to the South China Sea as a show of force, as promised two years ago by then-Defense Secretary Gavin Williamson. To talk but fail to act risks our nation being seen as nothing more than a paper tiger. But all these diplomatic and military manoeuvres will come second to the immediate crisis that every corner of the world is sharing. The pandemic, a reminder that there is always something unexpected ready to upend predictions.
0: James Hurst with that report. And as James mentioned, 2021 marks 20 years since international forces began operations in Afghanistan. But peace remains elusive. Negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban resumed this week. But those talks are staged against a backdrop of continued violence across the country. Johnny Welsh is a former diplomat at the US State Department with a special eye on Afghanistan and Pakistan. He's now at the United States Institute of Peace and told me it's hard to believe peace is even a prospect.
3: Well, the security situation is pretty bad. The war has again become the most violent in the world. It's basically the most violent that it has been in the entire history of this conflict. And even since peace talks started, some kinds of violence have tapered off, but other kinds have surged. And so the, the reality for the average Afghan or for virtually any Afghan is really, really bloody and hard. On the peace talks, though, there's an opening that hasn't really existed before. Um, There are some huge obstacles to overcome, but I would say generally both sides are reasonably serious about the negotiation. And they've sent a pretty strong team on each side to talk through the hard issues. And it's really important that everyone involved, including the US, which is uh, closely involved, really put everything they have into making this negotiation pan out.
0: What do you think those talks in Doha can realistically
3: achieve? We should be under no illusions that the two sides, the government and the Taliban, have very different visions. The Taliban want to basically remake the state and uh, governmental system of Afghanistan into something more Islamic. We don't really know what that means to them, uh, but that also includes the Taliban in a very powerful way. The government wants to maintain the constitutional order that's been in place since 2001, Um, with all the rights and democratic institutions that implies. That is not an easy thing to bridge, and it's all happening while there's this violence raging between them. On the other hand, they've both put forward somewhat constructive proposals about how to start moving ahead, um, what issues they should be talking about. Some of those issues overlap. I think both sides want to not be seen as the party that's standing in the way. And the Taliban, which have often been the really hard party to work with, really want to see the U.S. withdraw. And the price of the U.S. withdrawing is likely to be serious progress on these talks. So that's good incentive for them. Like some of the levers line up to give at least a bit of a chance to take on these very hard problems.
0: So do you think 2021 is the year where we'll see all US troops out of Afghanistan and NATO allies?
3: There have been a lot of years that were slated as the final year. Right now, there is a deadline of May 1st for those troops to withdraw, Um, but I think it's very wrapped up in other parts of the agreement where it's not clear that the US and others will see the Taliban as having held up their side of the bargain. So, I don't know, it's very hard to predict whether that will fully play out. Um, I would say, generally, these negotiations take a very long time. And because the troop presence is very pinned to negotiations, you could imagine it taking a bit longer than that.
0: Johnny Walsh from the US Institute of Peace. Well, let's return one last time to our panel. Shashank Joshi, tough negotiations, but some grounds for optimism. Do you agree there's a prospect of significant movement in Afghanistan?
5: Yes, I think there is. I think if you look back to when Joe Biden was vice president... He was very much against President Obama's surge of forces back in 2010. He was in favour of a very small, light footprint of forces focused on counterterrorism, based around intelligence and special forces, not large numbers of troops. And although I think there is enormous concern in the Biden camp over the way that the administration has pursued its drawdown, particularly in the final month and, and perhaps done so overly hastily, I think many will also be relieved that by taking that choice Trump has made it easier Uh, for the Biden administration to accept it as a sort of fait accompli. I think it would be very, very unlikely for Biden to put forces back into Afghanistan, and therefore I think he will also ultimately have to push his allies in the Afghan government towards making concessions for some kind of political settlement, however unsavoury that is. Uh,
0: And elsewhere, Michael Clark, as James mentioned in his report, there's the issue of Iran stepping up uranium enrichment. Will that affect Joe Biden's willingness to look again at the nuclear deal, do you think?
1: Well, he has to. um, And, I mean, Joe Biden's team, they know that they can't just go back to the old JCPOA, the the deal that they had that President Trump withdrew from. And so the idea is that the the old deal is the basis for negotiations of a new one. What the Americans are saying is that a sort of a no conditions return to a deal, and the Iranians say no 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 things have moved on since then. Why should we just go back to something that you left and then came back into? So the Iranians want a, a bigger price, uh, but there is a negotiation to be had. The Iranians still want sanctions to be lifted. They are still being cautious about their nuclear development but they're quite close now to being able to to take it to the final stage they know the Americans want to deal but equally the Americans know the Iranians want to deal so there is something to do um, but it won't be they won't just click back into where they were there's a whole new process to go through and that will involve also Iran's regional ambitions which remain pretty extensive across
4: the region
0: and Lucy Fisher it'll be interesting to see how the u.s approaches Russia after four years when it's felt like Putin's often had the upper hand
4: Yes, that, that's absolutely right. I think there is um, certainly the need uh, that's acknowledged by the Biden camp for a reset of relations that had um, f- right from the off of, of Trump's presidency been on a pretty unorthodox uh, footing. Um, but I think it's also just sort of worth stressing that, uh, you know, while, while resetting Russian relations will be uh, important, um, a, a real challenge is um, for Joe Biden will be the policy on China. And I actually think that's one area we might see continuity between the Trump uh, administration uh, uh, and Joe Biden's because the burgeoning rivalry between the US and China is not going to stop overnight. Uh, And I think that beyond um, some of the measures we've seen on trade, intellectual property protection, security and human rights are going to become um, major topics of discussion in Washington in the coming months.
0: And, And Shashank Joshi, America's allies must be hoping for a relatively calmer period after the inauguration. But with so much domestic strife to deal with, how much time will Mr Biden have to focus on the rest of the world?
5: I think it'll take a while. But of course, he has senior advisers like Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, uh, who are extremely experienced, who will have a lot of responsibility. They know the issues inside out. And I think it's very important to say there are some quick wins, you know, extending the New START arms control treaty, rejoining the JCPOA, uh, overturning things like the decision to draw down troops from Germany. These are relatively relatively simple, straightforward decisions. They don't require huge amounts of interagency review and Biden can can satisfy allies a great deal simply by doing those and not by picking unnecessary in, uh, um, and um, acrimonious fights.
0: It's going to be an interesting year ahead, isn't it? That is it for this week. Thanks to Lucy Fisher, Shashank Joshi, and Professor Michael Clark. Don't forget, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS Sitrep And at BFBS.com/slash sit rep, you can listen back to past episodes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.